1: everyone. I'm Kim Hake. I'm your host. If this is your first time tuning into the show, welcome to another episode of Anne Security for All. I hope everyone's having a great fall day. I know I'm here in the Midwest, and actually, it feels like summer today, but last week, we were down in the 60s. So, Fall is here, and hopefully soon we'll be back out there seeing everyone in person. For those of you who don't know, I'm also the CEO of FutureCon Events. We host cybersecurity events throughout North America. Obviously, through COVID, we've been doing everything virtual, which is getting very, very old and stale for many of our attendees and sponsors. Um, We had a live hybrid event last week in Kansas City Prior to that, we were in Ohio, we were in Texas, and seeing attendees and sponsors, again, it's been amazing, super stimulating. It's something I've done for decades, and I've taken it for granted, and with the last year and a half being virtual, it was really great to see people and say hi to people instead of virtual hellos, virtual messages, virtual presentations, virtual keynotes. My team and myself and all of our attendees and sponsors have been networking through these computer screens and it's getting very old, but much to my surprise with all of my attendees and speakers that keep saying, we can't wait to get back out there. We show up at these live events and we are still only getting about one third of our attendees showing up in person. Of course, we're getting the rest that continue to support our events and they are there virtually. But the question I posed to you is, are people going to start going back out to live events? I understand that people are still very fearful of COVID and I completely respect that. So that I'm not questioning that. I'm questioning the people that are getting comfortable at home. And it's very easy to stay at home. It's very easy to have your computer, you know, events be a fingertip away, you know, and you guys watching them at, at home. So I hope this is not our new normal. I've been, like I said, running these kind of events for over 20 years. And the thought of people not wanting to get together again is so hard to comprehend. I would love to hear from any of you guys out there, our FutureCon followers, my followers, what is it going to take to get back to live events again? We had an amazing day in Kansas City last week. As a matter of fact, my guest today, he was our keynote speaker. We had about, as I said, a third of our audience live and the rest, they were watching the show virtual. Um, Again, it was great to see everybody live again, but... I just am wondering what it's gonna to take to get the rest of you guys to come back out again. Football games are doing it, baseball games are doing it, but when it comes to conventions and conferences, are we at a place now that it's just easier to watch it on your computer? Is it you know, just too easy to stay at home? Is the human desire of seeing people lost? I don't know, I hope not. Um, It's very interesting right now in our history and to see where society is going to go as we move forward. Just like artificial intelligence, you know, look how quickly that moved. We have smart homes. We have smart cars. We have smart bicycles now. This summer, we watched um, Elon Musk take a random crew to space. And that's what our keynote speaker spoke about. What can Elon Musk and SpaceX teach us about cybersecurity? Well, that's a good question. Today, my guest is Morgan Wright, who is internationally recognized expert on cybersecurity strategy, cyber terrorism, and advanced technology. His landmark testimonial before Congress, his bio always tongue ties me, his landmark testimonial before Congress and healthcare.gov changed how the government collected personally identifiable information. He's made hundreds of appearances on national news, radio, print, and web. You can catch him frequently on Fox News, and you can always catch him over at Sentinel One. He is their chief security advisor. Last week, his topic, as I said, at our live event was what Elon Musk and SpaceX can teach us about cybersecurity. So let's find out. Welcome to the show, Morgan.
2: Thanks, Kim. Hey. Saw you in person last week and now we're back on camera this week. So uh, best of both worlds.
1: And isn't that a very interesting topic? You know, what is it going to take to get people back out to live events again?
2: You know, I think eventually it's going to take the manifestation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. At some point, I think people need human contact. You can only do so much, you know, isolated from people. But I'll tell you, some of the best ideas I've ever had, uh, not and I can count them on one hand, the good ideas I've had, but they've come from interaction with other people. They've come from having those aha moments uh, as you're talking to people everywhere from inside of Bill Labs with the smartest people in the world to uh, a, a, a plane flying to you know Australia and talking to somebody next to you. And it's like, oh, I need to write that down. So, you know, hopefully we'll get there. It's going to take some time, like you say.
1: Yeah, it's just going to almost rebuild what live events look like. But it does drive me crazy when we were in Kansas City. I was watching the Chiefs football game that Sunday and the stadium was packed. (laughs) You know, so
2: well maybe we should make conferences a contact sport, you know, and then then we'll get some people in there.
1: (laughs) Well, your topic was super interesting and you made it very conversational last week. And you know, where did you come up? Well, well let let Halt a minute. I'd like to talk about how you even got to where you are, and how Morgan Wright got to be on the news all the time. And you want to tell us a little bit about how that path and that journey went?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I started uh, 18 years uh, state and local law enforcement. Actually, Um, I was, uh, as you can see behind me, a state trooper in Kansas. I was a detective, uh, police officer, and but you know, after about 18 years, it's like I love doing the work, but it's kind of like I needed to do something else. And during that time I had started uh, specializing in things like computer crime investigation. I was part of the first batch of people that actually formalized how you conducted internet investigations. In fact, I trained the FBI for a year on internet investigations. Microsoft was one of my uh, private clients uh, on conducting internet investigations for pirated software. So we were doing those things, but you know, um, there were some a lot of opportunities, especially out in Virginia. So that's kind of what pulled me out here. And when I was out here, a lot of my work before 9-11, uh, I was down in Columbia working on Plan Columbia. So it was always the combination of people and technology and looking at how do we solve these business problems by thinking about it differently. Fortunately for me, I wasn't constrained by the beltway thinking, or this is the way we've always done it. It was like You know, come into this with the mind of a child and say, well, why, instead of saying, here's why we can't go, why not? Why can't, you know, let's do this instead. So, you know, after 9-11, a lot of work in the defense intelligence community um, from the private sector uh, companies like SCIC and Unisys. worked at the Department of Justice from Bering Point. I was the lead on a project called the Law Enforcement Information Sharing Program. So our big challenge was, Kim, is how do you share information between 18,000 federal, tribal, state, and local law enforcement agencies? Um, I was the lead subject matter expert on consolidation of the terrorist watch list. How do you combine them from 25 down to two? Believe it or not, the most important issue wasn't the technology. It was the issue of privacy, which is what I testified about about later in front of Congress. It was a business problem. is how do we keep information private about citizens that does not need to be exposed when they're actually, you know, when they may be on the terrorist watch list or being evaluated for that. So, you know, Kim, it's always been a combination of things. Uh, I went to Cisco and I ran their uh, global public safety programs for Homeland Security, public safety for eight years. Uh, We developed a lot of solutions. One of them, we got featured on the 1000th episode of America's Most Wanted. I actually spent a year and a half as a technical advisor with John Walsh. Um, You know, and then uh, senior advisor, U.S. State Department anti-terrorism assistance program. All all this tells you is I've got occupational ADD. I just can't find one thing I want to do, you (laughs) know. So, you know, I I was doing these things. But. The way it kind of got into news was actually by accident. And it was from uh, what I said earlier, the computer crime training. Um, I got a call one time because somebody wasn't available. They said, hey, call this guy. And the first time I was – actually, it's the second time I was on the news. The first time was when we had the very first denial of service attacks that happened in February of 2000. My team – was doing threat intelligence, the early version of it, incident response at SEIC. We actually put out an advisory to our clients uh, and our customers saying, hey, this is what's going on. Well, then Congress found out about it and they said, well, how did you know this stuff? Because it was kind of obvious. So I got it started on the news and then the Elizabeth Smart case came out. And I was uh, kind of their computer expert, but they were asking, hey, what about this? What about this? So that's, you know, and once you get on there and you do a couple of things, they kind of go to you. So it's not like I did anything special. It's kind of like. I was available, they called me and they liked me enough that they made the mistake asking me back the second time. So that's kind of how I got involved, you know, in a lot of this stuff.
1: Well, that's awesome. And congrats on your success. Um, Jonathan Kimmett, he's watching our show again. Jonathan Kimmett is the CISO from the University of Tulsa. Thank you, Jonathan. He actually, our first live event, he drove from Tulsa to Dallas, Texas to sit on our panel, and he's a big supporter of our show. And he said, I think there'll be a new balance of live and virtual. Go ahead, Morgan.
2: I I was going to say, my my connection to Tulsa, and you might remember this, my sister got married in what was then the Oral Roberts Towers, on the third floor of the Oral Roberts Towers, because my brother-in-law worked for a Christian book publishing company that was on the 57th floor. So not only do I know Tulsa, I went to a wedding in the uh, the the towers there. They're just uh, awesome. I've been down to Tulsa several times. So anyway, that's my connection to Jonathan and Tulsa.
1: <laughs> well, we love Jonathan. He's a bit, he's actually going to be uh, doing an, He's done several of our panels. So I'm surprised he hasn't been on a panel with you yet, Morgan, but I'm sure that'll come. So very, very fascinated by your topic, because all I know about Elon Musk is I watched it. <laughs> you know, I watched it that morning. And um, but how does that teach us about cybersecurity, SpaceX, X and him? Let's just kind of go into dive into that topic.
2: Well, you know, part of it comes too from there's a great book out there. If you folks want to read something good, and I know one of the authors, Christopher Lockhead, it's called Play Bigger. And it's how do you become a category king? How do you how do you own a market? Because you do things like you solve a problem nobody knew they have, or you solve a problem people thought couldn't be solved. That's where great wealth is made. That's where great leaps are made. Nobody knew they needed an iPhone until they needed an iPhone. So, I you know, I got to looking at it. And the one thing that struck me, because, again, I like to look at things differently, Um And a precursor to that kind of what helped formulate that is one of our biggest challenges down at the Department of Justice was we had all of these policy people. People – I got so mad one day because none of these folks had ever really put on a set of cuffs on anybody. Nobody had ever been out in the field. Just some policy people, senior people, and I get it. You need those. But I kind of slapped my hand. and I said, you guys have no freaking clue what it takes because they were – well, we can't share this. We can't share this. I said, let's reverse this. Let's what can you not share? What by law can you not share? And so we had only eight categories of information we solved in one hour, which we had what we had spent a week on, which is instead of defining all the things you can share, just simply define the things you can't. And by definition, if it's not in that list of eight things, which was very specific then you can share everything else. Let's solve the problem, people. Let's quit pontificating. Well, one of the things Elon Musk did, one of the biggest costs inside space programs, there's two things affecting it. And look, I learned this lesson from listening to, I think it was Buzz Aldrin um, or Alan Shepard talking about going to the moon. He said, really going to the moon back is very simple. You only have to solve two problems, how to get there and how to return safely, but you don't take off until you solve for the second one as well. Well, Then fast forward, Elon Musk comes into this out of PayPal, you know, made a bunch of money doing that, different way of doing transactions. And then I I watched, I've read stuff about him. I've listened to his interviews. And he just, what he does is he doesn't allow, like I said, the beltway constraints, the typical constraints. And so the couple of the biggest problems inside the space program were the cost of the solid rocket boosters. The costs, they're associated with things that were basically disposable. Um, You shoot those things up, the solid rocket boosters come off fall back to Earth, they, you know, disintegrate, you got to make some new ones. Well, for some people, that's a good business model, because they make a ton of money, you know, making those solid rocket boosters. Elon said, he just simply said, why can't we just reuse the rockets? You know, and out of that, one of the big differentiators with SpaceX was born, which is, let's just reuse the rockets. And so I got to thinking about what what lesson could we learn out of that? And it's really the lesson of terminology, Kim, because, It's kind of like you said, and you violated my rule and I have to fine you for it. So next event, you owe me a beer. There's no such we don't say new normal anymore. I mean, that's it's just for me, it's like if we accept what's here, then as normal, then we will never strive to really change it. Instead, what I'd rather say is what's my current reality? What do I have to deal with right now? I will change it. But what do I have to deal with right now? Well, one of the things I learned in cybersecurity, especially testifying before Congress, a couple times, things like that is words mean things. If we put a word into the vocabulary and people use it consistently over and over again, they become, uh, you know, sensitized to it. That They think, oh, that's the way it's supposed to be. Why did the Hatfields and McCoys fight for all those years? You know, well, by the way, why are solid rocket boosters the size they are? You know, when you when you work your way back, they have to fit on a rail car. Why a rail car to, to go through tunnels? What were the, why the tunnels? You, it goes all the way back to Roman chariots because Roman chariots were two horses wide, and that kind of became the standard. When you look at a train, I guarantee you, you put two horses on there behind a chariot, that's about the width of a train track. So the reason our solid rocket boosters are the size they are, it's because of Roman chariots, right? So we get, we get caught up in all of the sinking. So I simply said, let's quit talking about responding and recovering from these events, and let's talk about stopping them. So my biggest lesson to learn was just flip the problem on its head. If we stop the attacks before they can even start, there is no recovery. We, I don't have to recover from something that never launched in the first place. So, you know, kind of, Kim, that's what, that's what got me started thinking about that, is how do we change the terminology around it? And, and it really then gets into changes our thinking around the problem. So let me stop there for a second, you know, and see if you want to go anywhere with that, because I have a couple things I want to talk to you about real quickly about thinking about problems.
1: Well, so if I'm not going to say the new normal, and even Jonathan said the new balance, everyone's the new this and that is, is that not our new reality?
2: (sighs) You know, it's our current reality, uh, you know, and so, I, you know, because I don't because news sounds like, hey, it's new and improved. So we, you, you deal with it for a long. Here's the new model, right? Well, the new models are out for a year until the next models come out. No, you know, John Chambers, when I was at Cisco, I had the chance to work with him a couple of times. Uh, in fact, like I said, the one big project I have that got on America's Most Wanted that, you know, got visibility at the highest levels. He had a famous saying. He said, you take the world as you find it, not as you wish it was. A lot of people say, well, I wish we could do this. I wish, you know, if wishes, you know. Pfft. I won't go there, but, you know, wishes – you can wish all you want, right? But what's my current reality? So instead of instead of accepting, oh, this is just the way it has to be, it's, it's – our biggest problems, Kim, have been accepting proverbial wisdom or proverbial uh, thinking and conventional wisdom, right? Well, this is the way we've always done it or we have to do it this way. You know, by the way, you know, if you think about it, um, why are certain things done the way they are? Because of something that happened years ago, the quick story I told at the conference was – one woman, somebody asked her one time, said, you make this meatloaf, but you're cutting the ends off. said, why do you do that? Well, that's why my grandma did it. So, said, well, let's go ask grandma why she did it. And she kind of goes, oh, you silly kids. You just baked meatloaf. The reason I did it back then was I only had one pan, and it would not fit in if I used the whole recipe. So I had to cut. So we have done so many things based upon what we did, and I'll tell you what that leads into. And that leads into the first discussion about one of the big problems we have is our way of thinking about the problem. That's the biggest problem we have. Um, you know, Albert Einstein said, if I had one hour to live and my life depended upon solving a problem, I would spend the first 55 minutes thinking about the right questions to ask and then five minutes solving the problem. We spend too much time reacting to things. So- let me let me. So I, when I talked about that, I said there's three stories I want to tell. One was about solar ones. The second one is Colonial Pipeline. And the third is um, I, I predict and I show how Russia will invade Ukraine in the future, take over the country without firing a shot. But if we go back to solar winds, it wasn't so much the issue, yes, did did the Russian GRU, the military intelligence, did they get into their system, their update system? Brilliant. I'm just thinking from an adversarial standpoint, yes, they found a flaw because people trust updates. We have this inordinate trust that an update sent out is supposed to be fine because it's coming from a trusted source. So we trust something that I inherently am supposed to trust, you know, transitive trust. If A trusts B and B trusts C, then A can trust C. Well, As we found out you can't trust the updates because they got into the source of the updates well the way people mitigated quote mitigated the risk if we use the you know the standard uh you know industry speak, this is how we mitigate the risk you know well what they did was we had a sandbox and our sandbox three or four days you put it in there and our theory was and our thinking was if nothing bad happens in three or four days then it's safe to put it in the production environment there's your flaw in the thinking when I used to teach uh, interview and interrogation, I taught uh, behavior analysis out at the National Security Agency to people who did damage assessment investigations. In other words, when you had an espionage case, they, they investigated not the crime because that's the province of the FBI, but they investigated what was the damage done to the national security of the United States? How did they get this information? How did they do it? And many times what they found is that our adversaries were thinking about the problem differently than we were, like, how do you get information out? What can we do? So in this case, what they exploited was our way of thinking about the problem. We thought after three days, we're fine. We push it into the production environment. All Russia did was sit back and go, fine, we wait 10 days, we wait 12 days. And after 12 days, their little software periscope popped up. It looked around in the environment. If it saw certain things – it didn't execute Sentinel One. I'm just sorry, shameless plug for self promotion. Uh, but it didn't execute because we would detect it. It found other products. It said, "Oh, great! I can tamper with those." It tampered with those, and then it executed, and then it put the code. Then and then it was already in the production environment. So that's how they got their foothold. So again, it goes back to Kim. What we exploited wasn't so much. There's always going to be flaws in software, but we exploited our way of thinking about how we prevented the problem in the first place, and that was the real problem because. I think I just saw this Neil deGrasse Tyson said, he said, uh, the dangerous thing is not having enough information to think you're right. The dangerous thing is having enough information and not knowing that you're wrong. Um, And so, yeah, kind of that's where I think we are. I think we've been so wrong about this stuff because we've applied proverbial uh, thinking and conventional wisdom to this. Um, We've ended up with the same problems over all this time.
1: So when we go back to SolarWinds and we look at, it's just kind of coincidental. I had, I'm multitasking right now and I'm running a virtual event right now. And our keynote speaker was from FireEye, but now he's in the Mandiant service. He's in Mandiant Advantage which is, I don't know if you know a lot about Mandiant and they're breaking away from FireEye. So, and FireEye seems to be merging with another company. So do you think that's all coincidental or do you think that's something that led from everything that happened with SolarWinds?
2: You know, I, what I give Kevin Mandia credit for is that they had the cojones to come out and say, "Yep, we got." And they actually broke it. They said, "Yep, um, they got into us. They stole some of our red team tools." Um, they announced that information. So, competitor or not, I just give those guys credit for for going out there and saying, "Yep, they got us." And so, I think that is one of the big issues because there's issues. What what they were really good at? Because you got to remember too. Until uh, uh, Mandiant at that time came along, the company, and issued their first threat report about APT-1, Advanced Persistent Threat 1, which was Unit 61398 of the Chinese People's Liberation Army, Um, the government had just been messing around with, oh, you know, we're going to address this. But somebody finally came out and clearly put China uh, on the radar to said, this is who's doing it and this is what they're doing. And so I think there's a need for services like that. I think um, I don't know enough about... What the inner workings are, um, you know, I do know is that um, there will always be a need for good, very good threat intelligence. And there will always be a need for incident response. And there will always be a need for companies, you know, that work in those areas. So um, I think this may just be a natural outgrowth out of everything starting back. I think it was 2013 with APT1, you know, and coming forward to SolarWinds, you know, and Colonial Pipeline, things like that. But I have no special insider knowledge uh, about any of that.
1: It was just coincidental since I just wrapped up talking with the CISO <laughs> over at Mandan or however you say it, but then we move on to Colonial Pipeline, which is uh, you're the expert on that, but a complete different type of attack. So, what do you think we've learned from that? And how is all um, not- this going back to SpaceX and cybersecurity? Like if we can well
2: because the together. Yeah, no, it's a very good question. What's the one enduring image that will come out of the colonial pipeline uh, hack and the ransomware attack? It's the it's the poor lady with her plastic bag putting gasoline into it because she perceived that there was a gasoline shortage. There was not a real gasoline shortage. Uh the hiccups they had in the supply chain were due to people's overreaction to the problem. And I go back to COVID. I mean, how how many people, and I can't see in the audience, but you know, if you raise your hand you go and you go how many people went to the grocery store or you know Costco or Walmart or wherever and only to find out that there's no toilet paper what what symptom of covid required you to stockpile toilet paper we perceived that that was going to be the problem we let the news media drive it so in the in the so how this relates back to colonial Colonial suffered from conventional thinking again, they did it you know well you know we we do this industry standard best practices if I hear that again I'm going to throw up you know because all that is is that's a way for you to tick the box and say, look we've done the bare minimum watch office space sometime fifteen pieces of flare is the minimum and if you just want to do the minimum that's fine, but you know most people do more than that, but we got to quit thinking that the minimum is good enough right best needs to be the standard um and and so what happened with colonial is they are very, very fortunate for one aspect. They are fortunate that Dark Side, which is a criminal ransomware organization operating out of Russia with the implicit approval of the Russian government. Don't kid yourself. Um, I know these guys like I know the back of my hand. They operate with the implicit approval of the Russian government. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. As long as you don't attack Russian interests and you don't attack friends of ours, you're free to go out. By the way, the reason they do it in places like this out of Russia or other countries is because we don't have extradition treaties there, Kim. We don't have mutual legal assistance treaties. They will not help us on an investigation unless it suits their national interests. So in a case of Colonial, it was one unused account. They harvested uh, a, a password that had been probably reused many times off of a breach out of the dark web. And if you're just persistent enough, which they were, they were able to get into the IT system, the administrative side which they were able then to spread ransomware throughout that, shut them down. Now they did not get into the operational technology side or the industrial control system side, the ICS, which would have shut down the pipelines themselves. That actually happened in Germany. Um, the Germans uh, will not confirm nor deny it, but the uh, Bundeskriminalamt, I think the BKG, did an investigation back in 2015. Um, a steel plant over there, Tyson Krupp, uh, actually was attacked and had a uh, steel blast furnace meltdown, caused significant damage Uh, simply because of people thought we had, we did the minimum, you know, we had the proper controls in place. In the case of Colonial, the part that hurt them is, you know, they, they just did the standard stuff. Well, they, first of all, You've got to pay attention to the details. It's the small things that they go after. It's the things you overlook. One of the biggest banks, and I I think if I remember right, it's JP Morgan. They had 250 servers, one. Just one server did not have multi-factor authentication on it, and that's how the bad guys got in that time. In this case, one unused account, we're able to get the uh, VPN credentials and get into the company through that, through an account that should have been shut off and it wasn't, reusing a password that never should have been allowed to be reused. This is why you do not use the same passwords for Twitter as you do your 401k, bad practice. Um, And then, but the most telling thing, Kim, was the statement by the CEO. After he was fortunate, after they paid $4.5 million ransom, which was not the biggest at that time, an insurance company paid $45 million around the same time, but they got nowhere near the same coverage. Why? Because this was the first attack against critical infrastructure that we could actually see or perceive that we saw the effects of an attack before somebody that's lost money or a website's just having, you know, it's shut down, doesn't really affect my life. But when I'm in Virginia and when I can go, when I was, you know, driving by gas stations and there's signs up going, we're out of gas. It reminded me of being college in the late seventies and the gas crisis, the oil crisis, we have no fuel or, you know, it started going sky high. So in the case of uh, colonial, not only was it just conventional you know wisdom proverbial thinking that that, that they were we've we've always done it this way well, they were lucky because, like I said, it didn't get into their ICS. It just shut down their administrative side. But that created the problem because it's like going to Walmart and you can't get in the doors. All the inventory is still there. They just have no way of accounting for the sales, running credit cards, taking cash. So it effectively shuts down the entire operation. And after they paid the $4.5 million, the FBI was able to help them claw uh, quite a bit of that back because the actors, the bad actors – used poor tradecraft. They had some flaws in their operational security, their opsec, which allowed them to figure out the the wallets, the Bitcoin wallets that they were using and claw that money back. And then the CEO goes, well, you know, now that we've got this money back, I think I'll spend some of that on cybersecurity. Pal, if you had just had spent, you know, half of that on cybersecurity, you never would have been in the news. You wouldn't have taken the hit that you did and we would not have dealt with this perception of a shortage. So if you think a perception of a shortage is a bad thing, Wait until we have a real shortage. Wait until something really happens, and then you're going to see what happens. An Israeli general, uh, Kim, said one time that used to advise Netanyahu, and I added a third category to this. But his he said, if you want to bring a nation to its knees, you go after two things, power and water. And then I added a third thing, which is food. If you go after those three things, Kim, um, you can throw a nation into chaos. And the one lesson from Colonial is we got thrown into chaos. Why? Because of just some simple Bad practices, bad fundamentals. You're talking about the football game. By the way, the Kansas City Chiefs, I think, lost to the Green Bay Packers in the very first Super Bowl. But even though the Green Bay Packers were the champion, the next season, Vince Lombardi took nothing for granted. He held up the football, pretend this coffee cup is the football. He goes, gentlemen, this is the football. So we, we've we got to get back to fundamentals, back to basics in a lot of these areas.
1: So do you think after Colonial, I mean, lots of people have had lots of opinions about this do you think it woke up some of these old school, like our infrastructures and our municipalities? Do you think that the higher ups and the board and the the sea level people are taking things more serious? Or do you think it's just a matter of let's hope it doesn't happen to us?
2: You know, there's the thing, is, you know, ah, gee, it sucks to be you until it's you. Right. Then it sucks mm-hmm. to be you. Right. Um So, you know, we've had a lot of people say, oh, glad it wasn't me until it's them. And so I think the bad problem is, is many of these folks, I think they know that it's serious. I think they don't, but I don't think they realize how to address the problem because they're trying to apply proverbial thinking, conventional wisdom to solving this problem. And it's not going to be solved because they keep saying, well, how do we respond and recover? Look, after 9-11, I get, we, we, we have, it's called the National Incident Management System, NIMS. And it's about how do you deter, detect, prevent, respond, you know, and recover to these things. There's kind of a model to that. But what I'm telling you, as long as we keep articulating solutions in terms of how do we respond and recover from this, we will keep buying things that fit into the narrative we have in our head that says, how do we respond and recover as opposed to, Let's just stop it, right? How much simpler would life be if stop signs actually worked and they made cars stop? If yellow lines actually worked and they kept the other cars on the other side of the road? They don't. We rely a lot on trust. We rely, uh, you know, on overabundance of trust that people will do the right thing. I, I hate to tell you this, people don't do the right thing after putting um, my testimony resulted in many people going into prison for the rest of their life, like on homicide cases, uh, testified, you know, and, and, uh, on other things. Words do mean things. And so we've got to quit thinking that this is the way it's always been done. This is the way we're going to solve the problem. We've got to start approaching this from the standpoint is changing our lexicon to say we will no longer accept solutions that only allow us to respond and recover. We want solutions now that allow us to stop this at the border. We want solutions that will extract a significant economic price out of our adversaries for attempting to break in. I'll give you a quick example. Um, you're in Missouri. I'm originally from Kansas. Uh, I'm in Virginia now. Um, it's not hard to go down the street sometimes and see who's on vacation. Why? Because they forget to get their papers taken in, you know, or um, they leave, you know, maybe they leave the light on and the porch lights on all day long and all night long. So that's become some indicators. We we think, you know, if we have the papers out there, that's an indicator that, hey, this is, this is vulnerable, right? If you want to make it even more vulnerable, leave your front door open, right? If you want to even make it more vulnerable, put a sign that says we're gone for a week. You think I'm kidding, but we tend to look at problems, Kim, and this is where I'm getting to. The biggest problem we have in the cybersecurity industry is we look at solving the problem from the eyes of the good guys. That is the absolute wrong way to solve this. We have to look at this through the eyes of our adversaries. If I were going to break into a house— and this is one thing I used to ask, especially for people who committed many, many burglaries and got away with it for a while and would frustrate me professionally because I wanted to catch these folks. And every now and then, you'd only catch them because of a you know, stroke of luck you know, or dumb luck on their part, bad luck, I should say, on their part. Um, but I, I, the, actually, the majority, I mean, it's like I walked into one guy, I said, look, we got you on all these burglaries. I don't even want to talk to you about that. I mean, you did it. I know you did it. The court's going to know you did it. I'm more interested in how did you do it? What did you, what did you look for? You know, and when we would get these lessons, we'd pass them on to our community uh, policing our community services uh, division, or we'd pass it on to people who do crime prevention to say, this is what the bad guys are looking for. This is what the bad people are looking for to break into your system. And one of the things they're doing, um I have a meeting. I can't tell you who it's I can't tell you who it's with. It's a very large organization that week, next week. but they are many of these people in positions of leadership. Um, did not grow up. They're not digital natives. They did not grow up with technology. They tend to apply old world solutions to current world problems. That is a recipe for failure, Kim. So I think one of the biggest things that came out of Colonial 2 was, and goes back to your question about do they take it seriously. It's not the question that they take it seriously. It's the question, are you looking at this in the proper way that you should be to buy the technologies and the solutions that will ensure that we can stop these things from happening ever again? I mean, You know, for most people, the definition of success is buying a fire alarm that lets you know your house successfully burned down. The, a fire alarm is a reactive thing. It tells you something's wrong. And the farther away you live from a fire department, by the way, that's why your insurance rates go up. The farther, did you know that? The farther away you are from fire, established fire departments, the more you'll pay for insurance. Why? Because basically by the time they get down there, they're going to be saving the foundation. So I'm tired of saving foundations. You know what I'd rather do? I'd rather make the bad guys pay a price. I'd rather put that very solid door up front. I, you, by the way, here's a little trick. I I don't suggest you bluff, but this is a good deterrent. It's simply having stickers that say you have a security system. That, believe it or not, in the minds of crooks, they go, "I, I don't want to take the chance. They move on to a house that has left the front door wide open, Kim. So, you know, I think the executives are getting it. I think the problem is they don't know the right questions to ask. It's not so much. Um, do they understand it's do they understand the problem? But are we asking the right questions about the problem? Are we changing the way we think about our problem in order to buy the solutions that are going to get the outcome we want? Because quite frankly, um, if you keep doing what you've always done, you will keep getting what you've always got.
1: And that's a good point. And I had uh James Azar, he's front he runs CyberHub podcasts, and we talked about that is the terminology, and Jonathan Kimmet brings this up. He says, it feels like we consider um, security fundamentals are not really fundamentals for most organizations. Should we use different terminology? I feel like that's a yeah, really would, good question. Yeah.
2: I would say so. I would say, you know, in a sense, these are like table stakes. We don't move forward. These are absolutes, right? Um, these, are, these are non-negotiables. And I'll tell you, I learned that statement from doing personal development, you know, and working on planning and stuff. It's like you get a planner, you have certain things that are non-negotiable. it's like this is non-negotiable. We, we don't even talk about this, right? It's like I have certain things that I do, uh, certain things that are non-negotiable. There are certain uh, – I run a podcast too, Game of Crimes. Sorry again, shameless plug. Me and my buddy Steve Murphy from DEA Narcos. Um, the guys that brought down Pablo. I mean, we have our non-negotiables in our advertising. We we say we will not accept certain advertisers, period. And I we actually have a list of over 300 we pick from. We have gone on there. And we said, absolutely not. We don't do things dealing with this. We don't do things dealing with this, just period. So I think uh, to your point, I think, yes, we've got to start saying instead of staying fundamentals, we have to say these are non-negotiables. You will do this. You will have multi-factor authentication. You will. Um, by the way, Here's one thing, speaking of fundamentals or terminology, I dare anybody to point me to the research that shows me, that shows the world that by changing your password every 30 or 90 days, that your password becomes safer each and every time you change it. That was a fiction created by a guy at NIST who came out after he retired and said, I had no clue what I was doing. We had to come up. Well, I shouldn't say no clue, but he said, hey, we had to come up with the standard. So this is what we said. It's got to be this. It's got to be this. And, you know, and people started saying, well, we got to change it every 90 days. Why? Do you guys change the locks on your house every 90 days? Uh, do you change the keys to your car every 90 days? You change it when there's a problem, right? So if there's a problem, yes, change it. But uh, again, it goes back to the two. We, we've always done things because we've accepted it. And I think James was right. I think we've accepted terminology as being the standard way we should solve the problem. I just simply say, look, you want to t- quit drawing a line in the sand. I'm talking about etching a line in steel. You know, that's saying this is it, this far but no farther. These are non-negotiables. Anything up to this is fine. Absolutely not. And here's the problem too, Kim. The, if you start compromising once, you'll compromise twice. I've seen that in business negotiations. I've seen that you know in in working with getting admissions uh, in very significant criminal cases. If they admit to one thing, I can get them to admit to a second thing, and pretty soon then they're telling me everything that they did. So I agree. I think we go back to saying uh, we got to just quit saying that these are fundamentals. We have to say these are non-negotiables. You you will do these. These it's not well because this is NIST eight 800- hundred whatever it is you know the flavor of the week or where this is said no. You come to work for this company. These are, these are non-negotiables. You will use my factor. You will do this. You will do this. Uh, I think it's okay to say those things because guess what? I'm a consumer who pays every time there's a breach. Guess who pays every time you pass the cost of a ransomware attack on, Kim? Guess who pays? Uh, this is an obvious one, but I'm going to give you one shot at it. At the end of the day, who pays?
1: Well, we do. <laughs> the tax right. yeah and scott oliver he has two one long question but comments really thanks for tuning in scott the biggest problem is we have the massive talent gap but he goes on to say i apologize but you can spend 20 million dollars hold on his his he said you can sp- you can spend 20 million dollars on the newest security tools it's all pointless if your user opens the back door besides the massive talent gap which I believe Forbes said it would be 3 million headcount shortage by 2022. User education helps. Even then, it really only takes one user to leave a window open, driving secure principles and a huge challenge. He goes on to say another issue is, which is also a massive issue is that people hiring security talent really has no idea what they even need or looking for.
2: Yeah, it's like somebody says, well, I need one of these. Why do you need one of these? I don't know. But I was just told we need to have one of these things, you know. Um, So let's kind of go back and address a couple issues. I agree. You you cannot hire your way out of this. Uh, One of my other roles is I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Digital Government. Um, I did keynotes a couple years ago at half of the state capitals uh, going around doing these digital government summits. And I simply asked a question. I said, how many people here are fully staffed? How many people have all the people you need? And you're actually turning away people because you you've hired too many. Not a one. Everybody in, in government, in the private sector is facing a talent gap. So the way to think about this is this actually was some thinking that came out of post 9-11. There is a memo from this that was came came out of the sec, uh, Secretary of Defense Office. Sorry, slipping into jargon, SecDef. Secretary of Defense Office, and it's talk about spiral development. We sometimes wait until we think it's got to be perfect, it's got to be really good, and then we've got to release it. They're saying sometimes- if it's good enough, we can release that and then do so that's a spiral, maybe it's sixty percent where we need it, but then we do iterations within that spiral spiral, then we release the next increment, then we do iterations within that spiral, we release the next increment because what we have to do and, and to his point we've got to we've got to start bending this back, we will never get to the point where we have more capacity and capability then we have threats that we're mitigating, you know, and responding to. But how do we keep bending those things back? You know, so it's like going up a line like this. How do we keep doing this? How do the capabilities uh, of the tools and the requirements, you know, and then uh, and the needs of the analysts and people in stock and people doing all the hard work? You know, how do we keep bending those closer to that? So part of that is automation. And I'm not talking about just automate. You know, there's a lot of low value activities that we can automate. We just don't even need to be dealing with. Right. But but the real what's going to help us build this, bend this back a little bit is the getting to the point of where machine speed attacks need a machine speed response. Don't fall victim for this fiction is that I have a group of people here that will analyze all the threats coming in. We'll have experts take a look at this and then we'll get back to you and we'll tell you what to do. It takes a millisecond for ransomware to t- gain a foothold inside an organization and start spreading in one minute you're done. You're compromised. That's it. You can get back to me in 10 seconds and it's still going to be, um, uh, there, I just getting a spam call. I must've said something. (laughs) My (laughs) car warranty must be out of, you know, expired again. Hey, there's a, if you can find those people, you've really done something. But, um, but you know, so we go, we go back to this and it's like, that is a fiction. So what we have to do is we have to start saying, how do we automate a response to automated attacks, right? And and in that sense, is that we've got to – what we've got to do? Um, and I'm sorry, what was his name again? I just spaced out. The one that asked the question, Scott. 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 Oliver. Sorry, Scott. Yeah. Hey, Scott, what we've got to do, though, is we've got to give people we've got to give people the ability to do the work of four, but still do it within the same eight hours or 10 hours or, you know, whatever their typical workday is. You know, if they work four days a week or whatever it might be. Right. We've got to give them the capability of doing four times the work, but still doing it within the same constraints, because there is we cannot hire our way out of the skills gap. We just it's not going to happen. What we've got to do is get better at saying, how can we offload a lot of the low value activities and then have people we've got to have humans? And I learned this from my friend. Zach Tudor. He's the uh, assistant director of the uh, Idaho National Labs. Uh, smart guy, brilliant guy. Uh, his IQ is 10 times mine. That's why I listen to him when he says stuff. But I used to say, how do you stay in the loop? He said, no, we need humans on the loop. So there is. So it goes back to, I'll give you a quick um, move, piece of movie trivia, Top Gun, You know Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, right? That actually is based on real things that came out of World War II. A guy named Colonel Robert Byrd, I think, yeah, Robert Bird. He said, look, we were losing our superiority in air-to-air engagements uh, in North Vietnam because, believe it or not, we developed the most advanced fighter craft in the world. We thought that's going to be our problem. We were looking at it through our eyes, right? Well, the problem was the F-4 Phantom was equipped with missiles, which, by the way, were only accurate maybe 10 to 20, maybe 30 percent of the time if we were lucky. The Sparrows, I think they were. We had no machine guns on those. So we were getting shot down because we lost our ability to do air-to-air engagements. So he simply said, hey, this is called the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, and act. The faster that you can observe and orient, the faster that you can collect, fuse, and analyze, then the faster you can make a decision and respond. We don't need humans making a lot of these decisions. Now, there are some things we need humans defining what's the policies what are the outcomes we want and then we've got to do a really good job of deliberately applying technology to solve these big mission problems uh, but i'm telling you 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 we do is, if you take a look at how many people speaking of spacex right how many people were in mission control this time and how many people it took to actually launch the aircraft versus what we used to do um we've got technology has enabled us to become more efficient at doing more with fewer people uh by the way the first uh computer that allowed us to land on the moon, I think was a 384K uh, reduced instruction uh, assist, uh, reduced instruction set chip, wrist chip, right? 384K is all it took to land on the moon because all we had to do was some math calculations, right? But we had mission control was huge. So Kim, we brought that down into Scott's point. Um, it's going to take automation and you're right. We spend $20 million on a solution because we're solving a problem we thought we had as opposed to What is the let's flip this around. What's the outcome we want? Begin. Do what Stephen Covey said. Begin with the end in mind. What's the end state we want and work backwards into that? Too many times we go out and buy things because it's shiny and it's flashy and it's the latest thing on the block and all the kids are doing it. Mom, you know, why can't we get a solution like this? Only to find out that it doesn't meet the needs of what it is we're trying to accomplish. And the biggest mistake you make inside of companies, organizations, public sector, you know, government is not listening to the end users, not listening to what's their problem. Because if you put such an onerous burden on them around security, I guarantee you what they're going to do. Uh, they will find the easiest way to avoid that so they can get their work done. And that includes, to your point, if I can do all of this work, I can do all the awareness training. It only takes one person to not follow through on that training. And that's why humans can no longer be the front line of defense. Bad, bad In this day and age, it, back in the days of the castles and moats and everything else, great. Humans were first line – well, actually, the moat was the first line of defense, but humans are involved in that, right? Bad idea now, especially when computers can move you know, in, the, in, the, in milliseconds and we're still – we don't even know we've been hit for a minute and already there are organizations infected. So kind of a long-winded answer to get back to it to say um, we won't solve these problems until we start thinking differently about the problems we're trying to solve.
1: Moats make me laugh. My father happens to have a lot of funny stories about moats, but I won't go into that. But Scott Oliver, he also said a couple more things and we're getting close to the end of the hour. But he said the past year overseas uh, recruiters have been heading hunting, you know, um, headhunting talent in the U.S., hardcore with very competitive salaries so they're mm-hmm. making the talent gap even bigger and then he said I agree we cannot hire our way out of this because it's not enough people to hire true automation is good but then you still need people who understand what they're looking for to automate it I believe in automating everything you can we really need more graduating young adults to get interested in cybersecurity. I think though most we're most afraid of tempting to go into they are afraid of tempting to go into the field my daughter is going to do of Rye for cyber, and it took me forever to talk her into that. Congratulations on that, because I would love my younger daughter who's 17 to get into cyber, but it's just not fashionable for them. And I don't mean fashionable and materialistic. It still has that boring you
2: know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? It's not sexy. You don't have SEAL yeah. Team 6 parachuting yeah. out of the skies to go take out a bad guy. Again, until Colonial came, exactly that. Until Colonial, nobody had an idea of how important cybersecurity was until they said, this is affecting my way of life. I can't go get gas. Imagine what happens if we shut off telecommunications and we could, and for for a day, no connectivity, couldn't get power on your smartphone, right? What would happen then, right? So yeah, to your point. What we have to do is we have to get very smart at determining what things need to be automated. There's also things called RPA, robotic process automation. You know, how do we start offloading a lot of things which are just um, repetitive in nature and low value activities? But we still have to ensure, like he said, we still got to ensure that we have designed it correctly, continuously test it, you know, refine it. But then what we've got to do is start getting people better at looking for the anomalies, um, that are out there, right? We've got to have people who are curious enough to think, as Steve Jobs would say, think differently about the problem. So I would encourage anybody out there, go do, do go do a couple things. Read uh, Play Bigger by Christopher Lockhead and a couple of his other buddies, but also read anything by Clayton Christensen, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma, The Innovator Solution, What's Coming Next, things like that. I mean, why did they invent the Celeron chip? Because the Pentium was too expensive and pe- some people just needed a computer chip that was uh, less expensive and was just good enough to do basic things so I mean you look for those gaps in the market and you solve them but I would challenge people to think differently about the problem instead of trying to define all the types of information you're gonna share let's just make it easy well here's the eight things and I can articulate those eight things to today you know you know uh, you know uh, uh, confidential sources and methods confidential informants uh, civil investigations you know uh, personnel investigations, there were eight categories of things you could not share. Otherwise than that, share away, right? It makes life so much easier to know here's the constraints and here we go. So I think, you know, I think, you know, I know we're closing in on time, but again, I think the biggest takeaway, if you guys would just take away one thing, is ask why. Why are we doing it this way? Why? You know, who said? Challenge every, like my buddy Kit Pallinger said, uh, my Kansas High Patrol classmate who I hadn't seen in 25 years, we ran into each other in Kansas City. Challenge every assumption. Just because somebody says it's their assumption, don't make it your assumption. Challenge and don't make it personal. Just say, look, let's really work this backwards until we get to the point of where we really understand. Did grandma do it because it helps the meatloaf taste better or did she do it simply because her pan wasn't big enough? That will fundamentally change how you think about the problems of today
1: again still trying to we were just out in Kansas City I don't know if you got to meet one of our panelists um, she works for Sprint she's a big advocate for trying yeah. to get younger people uh, Cheryl Cooper you know again, Dr. Cooper Dr. Cooper trying to get our next generation into cyber you know this is kind of a little off topic but my um, and it's not just cyber I mean here in St. Louis it's crazy like I, I imagine it's everywhere with the de- like going I was going through a drive through at a sandwich shop And there's a sign on the drive-thru that said, if you swear at us or say any bad language because our customer support is so slow, we will refuse to serve you because we're such slow on, you know, there's just such a high demand. I mean, where where are all the people going to work? Where are they?
2: That's a good question. I'll tell you this. I just had to go. um, I got a brand new vehicle, never bought a new vehicle in all, all our years of marriage. And so my 2000 Camaro has been sitting in the garage. Uh, my bat- Actually, the battery went bad on it. It was just a bad battery. I just replaced it, and while they're getting the new battery, went over to Chick fil A and ate. Now, I'm not making a social statement or anything else, but I'm telling you, if you, this great customer service—you you, can—you can redefine an industry. And they are at the top of their game, and they're only open six days a week. Why? Because they just don't train their people to be nice. They, as they say, I think it was at Marriott or Hilton, we just hire nice people. You hire nice people, you can fundamentally change the world, right? And we've got so many things shifting right now in the world. I'll tell you, just take a breath. Here's the biggest. Here's the biggest takeaway for me. One of the things, lessons I learned. Slow as smooth, smooth as fast. I learned this from some uh, special forces people. You know, y- you don't see, in fact, when you watch many of these special forces teams, they're not all out running. They're very deliberate about what they do. It's, it's a hurried deliverance, but it's deliberate instead. So just slow down. Nobody dies simply because you don't click on a link in an email. Nobody dies because you don't respond the minute they say that you should. You know, just lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. And don't make somebody else's email your problem, right? So don't 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 take the monkey, as they say, don't take the monkey off of their back and put it on yours. Not my monkey, right? Let let it sit where it is and just take time. If everybody would carve out just one hour a week, you're gonna say, well I can't do that. Yes you can. You can do it because again it goes back to changing terminology. It's a non-negotiable. One hour a week I had a non-negotiable when I ran a team at Bell Labs in Alcatel Lucent. I had people there who hadn't taken vacation for three years. I said, this is a non-negotiable. You will schedule and you will have your vacation scheduled to me in 30 days, period. I didn't say or else. I just simply said it's a non-negotiable. You get four weeks of vacation, you take four weeks of vacation. That is our investment in you. So you've just got to put non-negotiables out there. You've got to redefine the terminology. You've got to just slow down. And I think everybody ought to take an hour at a minimum each week and just do nothing but let your mind drift and think about how do we solve this problem differently?
1: Well, um, come to find out, our friend Scott Oliver, he's from Kansas City, too, so he knows Dr. Cheryl Cooper. So a uh, big shout out to Dr. Cheryl Cooper. So we're down to about two minutes left. Is there any last parting words that you would like to give people, especially we're two days away from Cybersecurity Awareness Month? Any lasting yeah. thoughts? You know,
2: I, why why make it a month? You know, this, that's the problem. We said like, oh, yeah, yeah, we focus on it. It's like now that it's done, we move on to something else. No again it's a non-negotiable guys we're not going to do cyber security it's kind of like hey it's important right was it only important one month out of the year or is it important every day of the year right so i think again it goes back to how do you how do you message that within your own organization every it's culture too every culture is different so you've got to you've got to but you've got to get a culture around saying hey this is the way we do things you know we are dedicated. These are our non-negotiables. Get beyond the mission statement. Most people don't even know what their company's mission statement is, et cetera. Right? But what is? Your, what are your non-negotiable? We do these three things, period. No matter what, no matter what it takes, how long it takes, we do these three things each and every day. I, I have a routine. It's on a sticky note down here. I do this each day. When, you know, I get dressed. I come down to my home office, but I still get dressed and come down. That's my non-negotiables, and that's what I just say. Just get into a routine make it habit, do the things, you, you, you just don't do things you like to do. You have to learn to do the things you don't like to do, right? So you have to learn to like the things you have to do. Just learn to like them, get it done, question authority, question assumptions, and biggest of all, just take the time, take an hour and think differently about the problem. Don't say, well, this is why we can't say, well, if we could, could we do it this way? And what about this? You'll find many of the biggest inventions in the world just come from epiphanies of somebody going, Hey, why not this? And that's how big companies were formed.
1: Morgan Wright, Chief Security Advisor for Sentinel One, and he's also Chief Security Analyst for Fox News. Thank you for taking the time out to be with us today. We appreciate all your insight. So Um, We look forward to seeing you in the future. Join us next week. For those that don't know Chris Roberts, he is the man with the purple beard and um, a big influencer in cyber. Very excited to have him on the show. So everyone have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay secure, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for tuning into And Security For All. cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training, discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risks in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers, making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts. Unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen, where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.